The Clockwork Butterfly by Benjamin Kozlowski Once upon a time there was a fine young prince who lived in a fine old castle and who had all the finest toys and friends and pleasures a prince could ask for, and he was very bored. For, you see, he was the sole heir to his father's vast kingdom, and his mother had perished in childbirth, which had plunged his father into a bleak and pleasureless grief. The king took no joy in the young prince, for the boy was a constant reminder of his beautiful wife, and so he instructed the steward to grant the boy his every whim, so long as they were kept apart. And so the prince became surrounded by his playthings, and by flattering nobles who vied for his attention, and by servants doting on his every word. He knew of nothing he could not have, and so found little left to want, and soon all things became equally worthless in his eyes. So they languished, the prince, the king, and the castle, and days passed emptily, without incident or importance, for many years. At last, when the prince came of age, many eligible princesses came to appear before him, that a suitable match might be found. But the prince disliked their courtly manners and refined breeding, and he grew tired of them even more quickly than his childhood playthings. Ultimately, he dismissed them all, and would see no more princesses. It was suggested then by the king's advisers, who were knowledgeable about such things, that he might go out into the countryside and find a beautiful young peasant girl among the hamlets. The prince reluctantly agreed, and every girl of marriageable age in the kingdom thrilled at the prospect of meeting the prince and winning his hand. Immediately they pestered their fathers for finery and jewels and perfume, and many a farm was sold into the hands of ill-meaning folk, as the foolish young women pursued this slim opportunity. But they did not realize that the prince had ventured out into the countryside to avoid such thin nobility, and after only a day of such traveling through the villages, the prince was even less impressed by these posturing country girls than he was by the princesses of noble birth, who at least had the virtue of being simple and earnest in their love of wealth, and were ignorant of any other condition. But, as the prince and his company passed through these smaller villages, they happened upon a storm that made the roads impassable for a time, and he stayed in a simple country inn for a night. And it so happened that a great wizard, who was partial to causing mischief and bringing about good works through his cleverness, chanced to stay at the same inn on that very night. Indeed, it was later whispered that the storm itself was a sorcerous machination of the wizard to ensure this meeting, though whether that is in fact what happened, only the wizard may know. But as the prince and his company supped at the inn, the wizard told a story he'd heard in a far country of a princess locked away in a great castle by her overprotective parents, who had the castle enchanted such that it moved, wandering over the countryside on great legs like a turtle's, but faster and unpredictably, such that none ever knew where the castle might come until it was on top of them. And this seemed to the prince a wonder so magnificent that all the pleasures of his youth and all the finery of his station seemed to be worthless by comparison, and he took the wizard aside and demanded to know what he could of this enchanted castle and the princess locked away within it. Then, that night, as his protectors slept, he ran away unnoticed and set out in a peasant cloak astride a sturdy farm horse to find the magnificent walking castle and its princess trapped inside. The journey to the far country was long and hard, and even when the prince arrived there, few had ever heard of the castle on Turtle's legs, Fewer still had ever seen it for themselves, and those only remembered it distantly, as an encounter many years ago, when they were very young. 
So the prince wandered the wild countryside in search of the castle, receiving only some few scant hints of its whereabouts as he went. Years passed in his search as he followed the thin trail of rumors, until at last he came to a small, wretched village in which no children lived, at the edge of a great and perilous wood. Upon them all was the smell of death. The wood was known to hold many dangers, and deep in its midst lived an ancient hag who was rumored to know many things of magic and sorcery, and who claimed to know truths only known to spirits and the dead. So the prince ventured into the dangerous wood, which was so thick with dark trees that even in daylight he was forced to carry a torch, for the sunlight could not reach the root-tangled floor. But the trees did not take kindly to the flame, and they often tripped the prince's horse, or dropped branches of a sudden before the rider in the hopes that he might be thrown. The horse was stout, though, and would not easily startle, and the prince did not turn aside, so driven was he by his desire. But as they drew closer to the hag's bog in the midst of the wood, an adder was released from the hollow beneath the roots of a gnarled oak, and it bit the horse above the hoof, and it died of the venom. And so the prince waded through the bog alone, lost and without hope, until at last he found the small clearing and a hut on a mound of turf in the midst of the filthy waters. There he met the old crone, who was bitter in her loneliness and age, and greedy of life and love, and when the young prince told her of his quest to find the castle of the wizard's story, she refused to help until he promised to let her come to him by enchantment each night and kiss him as he slept for the prince was still young even after his travels, and handsome. The prince did not want to agree, for the crone was terribly old and horridly ugly, and he offered many other boons and gifts instead, but the hag would not hear of them, for in her magic she could conjure gold and lands and precious gems by the thousand, it was only youth and love she could not acquire for herself. Seeing that there was no other way to convince her, the prince agreed, on the condition that she never wake him as she came, for he despised her ugliness. To this the hag agreed, and they bound the pact that very night when she came to him as he slept, and kissed him without his waking. That morning, when the prince woke, the hag and the hut on the mound of turf was gone, as though they were merely a part of his dream. But among his belongings was a magical rod which pointed toward the enchanted castle when he balanced it on his finger. Thus equipped, he ventured out of the bog in the forest as the rod directed. For many weeks he followed the direction of the rod, crossing vast deserts and thick jungles and empty plains of high, sharp grass, but to no avail. For even as he knew the direction in which the castle lay, he could not catch it, for he was on foot and did not know its distance. Whole years passed as he followed the rod, and he became thin and worn with travel, and his beard grew long and haggard and he went whole months without seeing another soul. At last he came to the edge of the earth, and he rested on the featureless beach and balanced the rod and it pointed out over the waves, but he had spent all his money, and he had no boat. In rage and despair he cast the rod away out into the sea and wept until he fell asleep. But as he slept, the great castle rose up from beneath the waves of the sea on its four turtle legs, and the thunder of its progress woke the prince from his slumber, for it was loud and terrible. The castle was tall, 
taller by far than any the prince had seen before, with high turrets that streamed with seawater and seaweed and gleamed golden in the bright sunlight, and a great gate encrusted with emeralds and walls of rich-cut marble that seemed to glow with many colors, pink and blue and red and black and green, as it moved across the beach. And on its highest tower, which was so high its top was lost among the clouds it stirred in its passage, stood a magnificent clock face, easily the height of ten grown men across, composed of many concentric circles. In the innermost circle stood three great hands, each long as three men or more, which pointed to any one of twelve precious stones too large to hold in a single hand. At the top stood the garnet, and around the face were the amethyst, jasper, sapphire, sardonyx, emerald, onyx, chrysoberyl, peridot, aquamarine, topaz, and ruby. Around the central face were the circles of the moon, sun, and five planets, and on the outermost ring the constellations were depicted moving slowly around the whole. And this great clock was itself set upon a massive wheel which did not turn, but which depicted the four elements as they were intermixed and cast forth by the steady hand of God. Each of the planets was represented by a great gemstone as well. A great pearl as large as a man's head stood for the moon, an emerald a hand span across for Mercury, a diamond for Venus, a ruby wide as a barrel hoop for the sun, a large coral for Mars, a yellow sapphire for Jupiter, and a blue sapphire for Saturn. And the stars of each constellation were composed of precious gems, rubies for Capricorn, garnets for Aquarius, amethysts for Pisces, jaspers for Aries, sapphires for Taurus, sardonyx for Gemini, emeralds for Cancer, onyx for Leo, chrysoberyl for Virgo, peridot for Libra, aquamarine for Scorpio, and topaz for Sagittarius. These many precious gems and other stones sparkled and shone blindingly in the early light of the dawn with a richness the prince could never have believed had it not appeared before him in just this way. Forgetting his few possessions, the prince leapt up and rushed after the castle, but he was weak from hunger, and even though the castle moved slowly, it traversed leagues with every stride. Indeed, it was a wonder to far surpass even his wildest imaginings, and even as it strode slowly out of his sight, he knew he had to reach it some day and find the princess inside. So he dove into the water and sought out the rod he had lost, but he could not find it. But this time he did not despair, thrilled as he was with the wonder he had seen. Instead, he schemed to find another way.